There's this church in Washington, D.C., where I live, that has fossils in its walls. From a distance, it's all pillars and archways and steeples. It's monument-colored, monument, khaki concrete. But up close, its walls are clearly something else. They're covered with these small white spirals that look like the rings of a tree trunk, but oblong. They're 60 million-year-old circles of calcium. Calcium that was once algae in a lake in the place we call Utah. In the Paleocene, where this algae came from, dinosaurs were just a few million years extinct. Primitive mammals existed, but none that looked like us. I went inside one time and found a wall of pamphlets, like the ones in hotels that advertise local attractions. One says in Times New Roman, Is evolution or creationism correct? This pamphlet, surrounded by walls of 60 million-year-old fossils, it says the Earth is 6,000 years old. Growing up in the Bible Belt, I remember not understanding this debate at all. I couldn't understand why Christians cared if the Earth was old, if we weren't always human. I didn't think of any of that as mutually exclusive with what I believed. But it does kind of ruin the story, doesn't it? The seven-day project we can imagine, we can relate to our own experience. Deep time, on the other hand, we just can't understand 4.5 billion years. We can't make it a story. But the unofficial epoch that we're now in, the Anthropocene, the age when humankind has left its mark on the geologic record, it kind of forces us to think about deep time. Because proportionally, if you condense the Earth's age from 4.5 billion years to 24 hours, we as humans have been here for three seconds. And in that time, we have altered Earth systems dramatically and with potential consequences that far outlast the timeline of our existence so far. I'm Megan Modafferi. I'm a graduate student in English with a focus on environmental humanities, which is basically what it sounds like. It's the application of humanities fields like literature, philosophy, and history to questions of environmental change. Not instead of, but in supplement to scientific understandings. And this is Novel Climate, a podcast about literature, the environment, and people. I'm interested in the stories we tell about climate change, about the Anthropocene, and about our relationship to the environment and each other. So where does the story begin? In the beginning. Let's start at the very beginning. When exactly did we start on this path toward massive environmental change? Well, that's a tough call, actually. Scientists, historians, and experts of all kinds, they haven't reached an agreement yet. Some people, like paleobiologist Jan Jawaszewicz, argue the Anthropocene began toward the end and after World War II, during a period called the Great Acceleration. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, shining at the end of every day. For one thing, in July of 1945, there was the first nuclear bomb testing, and after that, until today, scientists can measure the existence of artificial radioactivity worldwide. And then, of course, after World War II, there was a period of rapid industrialization, with factories and highways and cars popping up, and the amount of carbon in the atmosphere increased exponentially. This time also marks the rise of plastic, when we started using it more and it started showing up in the ocean. 
Moving backward in time, some like the atmospheric chemist Paul Crutzen, who coined the term Anthropocene, say it started in the late 18th century, the Industrial Revolution. James Watts designed the steam engine, which used coal as power, and also marked the beginning of global trade in the way we think of it today. And it was around this time that air trapped in polar ice was shown to have increasing amounts of carbon dioxide and methane. But some people point even earlier. Simon Lewis, an ecologist, and Mark Maslin, an earth system scientist, argue the Anthropocene began the moment Europeans arrived in the Americas. It was at this point that flora and fauna began being displaced in a way that fundamentally disrupted ecosystems and started changing evolutionary pathways. But the year 1610 is also significant because it had a historic drop in global carbon dioxide levels. And this is one moment of many when the stories of the Anthropocene and of colonialism get tangled. Because the drop in atmospheric carbon was a result of the death of 50 million indigenous people through the transfer of smallpox as well as willful genocide by the European colonists. So in this one moment, we start to see a visible record of human activity and its absence, represented by levels of carbon in the atmosphere. And we see that colonial violence and the forced removal of people and nature is somehow linked in this story. And finally, Sylvia Winter, a philosopher and novelist, points to 1452, the beginning of chattel slavery, as the beginning of the Anthropocene. Although slavery had existed for far longer, chattel slavery represents the conceptualizing of human beings as property. Winter argues that voiding someone's subjectivity or their personhood is closely related to thinking of the earth as property that can be extracted, moved around, and exchanged for money without consequence. To quote her, quoting the economic historian Carl Polanyi, she talks about the reduction of man to labor and nature to land as an early and continuing market logic that undergirds the Anthropocene. So I'm thinking about those stories I just shared, those competing beginnings, and I'm thinking about all the other stories we tell about climate change, about the Anthropocene. Are you getting this on camera? That this tornado just came and erased the Hollywood sign. The Hollywood sign is gone. It's just shredded. Wait, that doesn't look like Earth. Where's the blue sky? Where's the, the grass? What's there to find at the Citadel? Green. And water. There's a ridiculous amount of clear water, and a lot of crops. Who are you? Wait, wait, I'm, I'm the Lorax! Guardian of the forest! I speak for the trees! And what it makes me wonder is, what do all these stories teach us? And what do they make it hard for us to see? Novel Climate is a podcast about fiction, and it's a podcast about climate. But not necessarily about climate fiction, how we normally think of it. I'm looking for stories that are outside of futuristic apocalypse narratives, because I think to understand the future, we need to look backwards, too, at all these different beginnings. And I think to understand our changing planet, we need to weirdly think more locally. In apocalypse-style climate stories, we often see a universal moment of crisis, where we see its aftermath. But I'm interested in stories that are less universal, 
Stories about specific storms in specific locations that happen at different times to different types of people with different frequency and impact, and yet are somehow related. Each episode, today notwithstanding, we'll look at a specific novel that I think does something different with climate fiction. Tells us something new about how we relate to the environment, to the past, present, and future of our climate, and to one another across race, class, and country divides. We'll also spend some time in each episode exploring the cultural and scientific contexts of the novel. Topics like the history of carnival as a mode of resistance in Trinidad, the role oil plays in conflicts in Nigeria, and the effect of nuclear waste sites on human health. But first, today, we'll plant some seeds. I talked with three people, a climate justice reporter, a social scientist, and an English professor. I wanted to know more about what other people from other disciplines were thinking and learning about the stories we tell about climate change. And I wanted to start actually with nonfiction. I wondered, what does an environmental justice reporter think about how we tell climate stories in the media? Yeah, my name is Rachel Ramirez. I'm an environmental justice reporter based in New York City. How did you get interested in this type of work? I was born and raised in Saipan, Northern Mariana Islands, and the islands in Micronesia and just um, the Pacific Ocean in general are no strangers to climate disasters and typhoons specifically. And so when I was in college, you know, I was studying communications, focused on journalism, and it was the summer and I was in Portland, Oregon, so thousands of miles away from home and and a super typhoon hit my hometown and my parents were there, my siblings, my friends. And, you know, there was a lack of coverage in, as always, in U.S. territories. It was stronger than Hurricane Maria, yet Hurricane Maria still had, you know, a bigger coverage. And, and so, yeah, I wanted to cover climate change at the time and, you know, what's been happening in our islands. Could you talk a little bit more about what it means to you to be an environmental justice reporter and and how that's different from other environmental beats? A lot of people think that it's about covering vulnerable communities that are hit the hardest when it comes to hurricanes, uh, wildfires, or any other storms or climate disaster, but it's actually looking at, you know, who has access to resources like water, who, who has access to homes, who has access to all the necessities in life, and a lot of that when you look at the historical legacies of injustice like redlining and other, you know, racist city planning policies back in the day, a lot of those sort of maps, you know, when you look at the maps, are intentionally built to segregate and marginalize communities of color, mostly in low-income communities that make them uh, more vulnerable to the climate crisis or any climate disaster. And also, when you think about where the fossil fuel industry facilities are located, which is, you know, one of the biggest polluters or the biggest polluters on the planet, they're mostly next to um, neighborhoods of color, low-income neighborhoods of color. When you look at Louisiana, um, Louisiana's Cancer Alley, they call it Cancer Alley because that whole industrial corridor from 
New Orleans to Baton Rouge is, is literally a swath of industrial facilities, petrochemical facilities that emit tons of greenhouse gas emissions that disproportionately affect African Americans in Louisiana. And so they have underlying conditions such as asthma, cancer, and other respiratory illnesses. And so, yeah, when I think about environmental justice, I think about the social, economic, and other, you know, environmental determinants or hazards that exist within a community that, you know, exacerbates other issues. So in that way, Rachel is working to tell the story of climate change alongside the stories of city planning and infrastructural inequality. And all this ties in with the story of 2020, the coronavirus, as well. I do think that, you know, the pandemic really exposed the cracks in our society. So at the beginning, before the onset of the pandemic, we were already covering environmental justice issues. But in March, they also started saying that, oh, underlying or pre-existing conditions like asthma and cancer make you more vulnerable to COVID-19. And so having that sort of curiosity and journalistic kind of line of questioning as an environmental justice reporter, like what causes asthma and cancer and other respiratory illnesses? And then we think about, you know, bad air pollution. And then you think about where the fossil fuel industry facilities are. And then I remember the first story that I wrote on COVID was, you know, mapping out, cross-analyzing where which communities are being impacted the most of COVID-19 using this map of from a healthcare a health startup and also where fossil fuel facilities are. And so it doesn't mean causation at the time because it's still, you know, preliminary, but that just knowing that correlation, even at the slightest, shows uh, serves as a function that this may be an environmental justice issue. Okay, so back to literature, sort of. I reached out to a social scientist. My name is Matthew Schneider Mayerson. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of environmental studies at Yale and U.S. College. Some of my work is more sociological. Some of it is more on the literary criticism end. But when I do literary criticism, I tend to look at it from an empirical perspective. More sort of what are the broader trends within a given genre and, um, and how does literature actually impact real readers. So he studies how readers respond to fiction about climate change. In other words, how reading fiction affects their understanding of the phenomenon in the real world. But before we get into that, he shared some context about the history of environmentalism in the U.S. and how that has laid a certain groundwork for our thinking about the environment and our relationship to it. You know, environmentalism has often been considered a very white movement, and it has has been um, a very white movement, and it still is today. If you look at sort of who's who are on the boards of, of the largest environmental organizations in the United States. Um, and to some extent, this goes back to the sort of way that Americans think about the environment. It goes back to conceptions of nature and wilderness. You know, wilderness, of course, means that you ignore the very existence of Native Americans who have lived in America's national parks for for centuries. Um, and then moving moving forward into sort of the really the real explosion of the environmental movement, in the 1970s and 1980s, um, there's really a focus on things like conservation um, and the idea that sort of environmentalism isn't about urban issues. And so environmentalists tended to focus a lot on um, things like wilderness and conservation and um, saving particular species, charismatic species, you know, all of which is important and, and which I support, but they tended to ignore um, environmental injustice. And so um, that can be in particular sort of the distribution of toxicity 
um, the siting of various factories that lead to increased rates of, of cancer um, and, other, and other diseases um, uh, in, in communities of, of color in particular. And so this is where he takes it back to literature and starts to break down the ideas of what environmental literature has been and why and how we might think of that differently. Um, and so I think going forward, sort of the way that people started thinking about environmental literature within the, the study of environmental literature in the 1990s, it really started out with you know, nature literature. People like um, John Muir and, and Thoreau and, and Emerson and sort of those kind of um, white 19th century authors um, tended not to look as much at authors of color, and in particular authors of color who, who may not have been using the same kind of terms that other authors were using that may not have been writing kind of like, you know, these peons to, um, to wilderness, but we're talking about a lot of the issues that are just as important. Um, and so I think the question is not like, why is there less of a focus on environmental injustice in climate fiction? But in part, the question is sort of, how do we define climate fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the way it's often been defined is by looking at literature that is focused explicitly on climate change, and that is really naming climate climate change. Um, but I think if we sort of widen that a bit and look at literature that is looking at different kinds of you know not so natural disasters, floods, um, heat waves, droughts, these sorts of things, um, then I think we we have a different view of of what environmental literature is about and what climate fiction is about. But when climate fiction really sort of rose to prominence and you know kind of got a name, this was around 2013. It was really focused on these white authors who tended to be viewing climate change as a future issue. And they primarily were focusing on um, the way that it might influence white characters, you know, who tend to be um, the primary characters that white authors put into their texts. Um, and so that I think that's problematic and that often kind of blinds us to, you know, the very basic fact that it will be people of color within the United States. It will be people in the global south. It will be poor people, it will be other marginalized people who will um, suffer first and, and suffer most from climate change. Could you explain what you mean when you say not so natural disasters? Yeah, I think we're all struggling to, to sort of adjust our very language to what's happening in the world around us, right? And we've, we've tended to use this phrase natural disasters to refer to typhoons, to floods, to hurricanes. But of course, they're not so natural anymore. Right. And we can never, you know, the way that attribution works is complicated. You know, we can only say that a certain uh, storm was made worse or made more likely by climate change. You know, it's not so easy as saying that climate change caused something like Hurricane Sandy, for example. And so I think I've sort of started using this phrase, not so, not so natural disasters, as a way of sort of indicating the fact that even the very terms we use can kind of load the dice. Right. So if we call a hurricane, a natural disaster, that's kind of letting us off the hook or letting certain people off the hook for a sense of responsibility and culpability. Yeah, I think it also ignores where storms are happening. So imagining that God is striking or or whoever <laughs> is striking mm-hmm. a particular area and it could just as well have been any other area rather than considering that the geographies of these things have human constructions as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that I've written about in, in the book I edited, Ecotopian Lexicon. Climate change is so big that it actually changes our language, too. 
right? So climate change has been called everything changed by Margaret Atwood, the sci-fi author. And, you know, everything involves our language and our concepts. And so that's, it's a lot to sort of parse and it's a lot to figure out. But I think not so natural is sort of my way of gesturing towards the anthropogenic origin of the weather itself. So how do readers respond to climate fiction? Matthew is actually the first person to do research on this topic. Yeah, I was interested in what climate fiction was actually doing. Um, you know, I think what I, what I noticed going back to 2013, when there were first a lot of really a lot of articles about climate fiction, was that there was this kind of um, implicit uh, expectation or desire that climate fiction was going to be having a positive effect on readers, and this becomes most explicit in um, in news articles that have headlines like, you know, can fiction save the world? Um, and that sort of thing, right? And of course, scholars are generally not that um, not that bold and not that explicit. And but I think there's always an underlying hope that um, you know literature can have a positive effect. That we're not just reading books for fun. We're not just kind of distracting ourselves to death, but that in some way literature does affect readers and hopefully affects them in a positive way, right? And that's always assumed. Um, and so I've done I've done three studies now on. The influence of, of climate fiction on readers. The first two were were surveys of readers. The first one was a survey of, I think, 160 readers of 19 different climate fiction novels, um, and that was really trying to get a sense of, of the genre in general and how people were responding to it. Um, the second survey was about the readers of The Water Knife, which is a, a kind of dystopic future novel set in the Southwest by Paolo Bacigalupi. And the last one was a, was a controlled experiment that I did with some folks at the Yale program in climate change communication. And what I found in general is there's some sort of confirmation of what a lot of scholars have expected. You know, climate fiction, readers say that climate fiction makes climate change a lot more visceral, that it makes it more real, that it helps them sort of put themselves in the shoes of, uh, of people in the future um, who are sort of suffering the worst of climate change. He told me about a range of responses to this novel called The Water Knife. For folks who haven't read it or heard of it, it's it's set in probably around the 2050s, I don't think it's explicitly stated, where um, things have gotten so bad that different states have closed their borders to migrants from other states. And so what I found is that, and it's also a very violent novel, Um, there's like a lot, it's kind of a noirish, there's just a lot of sometimes kind of gratuitous novel violence. He found that the action-heavy plot appealed more broadly to readers across political spectrums compared to other climate fiction. In other words, the readers who liked action movies and that kind of thing were drawn to this book. It didn't only attract readers interested in climate change specifically, who tend to be more homogeneously liberal. But that it kind of seemed to have some unintended consequences, in particular that um, it led readers to be scared of climate migrants. Right? Because in the novel, you know, climate migrants are responsible for some level of violence. And some people who took my survey said, um, you know, this makes me appreciate all of the good things I have now. Things like running water, um, you know, ready food. But it also makes me realize how many people would take it from me. Um, and so, you know, I think on one hand, then, the novel was effective in making readers aware of climate injustice. And so it did a good job in that. But I also fear, looking forward, that um, that this kind of framing might actually lead to support for some um, some pretty scary 
policies, right? I mean, I think looking forward, one of the things that we can be worried about is something like conservatives in the U.S. saying, okay, climate change is real, and that's why we need to build a wall. What is fiction about the climate for? It feels like the obvious answer is awareness raising, but I'm not sure that's where we are still as a culture, as a world. If people don't agree that climate change is a concern, I don't think it's because they've never heard of it. For Matthew and for many others, the role of fiction is imaginative. It's about designing for the future something different than what we have now. Sort of reminding people of our potential for goodness and our ability to form community and the importance of that, both for mitigation and adaptation to climate change. And I think also, you know, fiction can help us imagine better futures. So this is something that I think a lot about as somebody who studies and teaches about ecotopian visions. You know, I think it's very hard for people to get that excited about something that's just mitigating the worst consequences. Um, Like as a rallying cry, that's not a great one. And so environmentalists can have a long list of what we're against. But I think that doesn't always necessarily add up to a strong yes. And so there's a number of thinkers who are, who are a number of authors who are doing more in this. Kim Stanley Robinson is foremost among them, who are really trying to sort of plan out like, okay, what's the best possible future from here on out? And I think it's a lot better than just avoiding the worst consequences. I think it is about you know, fundamentally restructuring the world we live in and sort of seeing climate change as a fundamental challenge to so many of the structures of domination and oppression that have been, um, you know, plaguing the world for, you know, hundreds of years. So I think writing about better futures, about desirable futures, in a way that readers can really sort of, like, taste and smell and feel those futures you know, not in a dry policy document, but in a, in a character that you can inhabit and walk around in. I think that's something that's um, increasingly important. I wanted to learn more about how people read novels to think about the future and to rethink the present. So I reached out to Min Hyung Song, a professor of English who teaches whole classes on climate fiction. My name is Min Hyung Song. I usually just go by Min. Uh, I'm a professor of English at Boston College. Actually, a lot of my research has been thinking about Asian American literature in a, in a larger kind of sociological context. And my mo- most recent book is really reflecting a turn I've made uh, in recent years toward uh, thinking about the environment and race. Min told me about this idea from critical race studies, that you can learn about pervasive topics like race, like climate change, by looking for them on the periphery of stories that don't seem to be about them. You know, I, I think a, a generation of very difficult and very dedicated scholarly work has taught readers to see text in a way that brings race to the foreground, you know. Uh, and, and so literary texts that were once discussed without any mention whatsoever of race has increasingly become centrally focused on the topic of race, right? To take one example, you know, Jane Austen on the face of it 
you know, they're all white characters. They're set in an English countryside, usually, you know, and involve like class and gender dynamics internal to England. And that's usually the way it was read for a long time. And then Edward Said came along and he said, but wait, where does their money come from? How do they afford these big houses, right? And then people like, oh yeah, they, you know, some of these characters actually have like investments like in the Caribbean, <laughs> you know, their money is coming from like plantation work. Uh, suddenly, you know, uh, the novels uh, seem different when you start to pay attention to where their money is coming from. And so, you know, that kind of scholarship trained readers to, to read a text that often doesn't seem to be about race suddenly to be, you know, all about race in really interesting and exciting ways. And I think, you know, the, the examples are multifold. You know, there's Toni Morrison's really important book on, on, on paying attention to whiteness and thinking about what, what, if you think of whiteness as a race and not as something, you know, that sort of is a kind of raceless discourse, what happens to classic American literature by white people who are so assumed not to be about race suddenly, you know, they, they seem to be profound meditations on the very idea of whiteness itself. And, and in some ways, uh, on the idea of whiteness is contingent on, on a contrast with blackness and other minorities. So it seems to me that a similar kind of strategy could be useful in thinking about climate change uh, in two ways, right? One is to really insist that texts that don't seem to be about climate change can actually still be about climate change in profound and important ways, or texts that don't seem all that interested in environmental literature or in the environment is actually, you know, quite interested in the environment in ways that we just have to attune ourselves to perceiving. But I think also second and, and just as important is to understand how that kind of attunement to environmental concerns is also connected to topics of race and inequality and differences of various kind that we can't shear those two topics away from each other, you know, so that we're not, we're not what I'm proposing is not a, an approach to reading where you have like two tracks that run parallel to each other, one reading for race, one reading for climate change, but rather that those two are always uh, kind of in a way the same, that you can't really read for climate change without also reading for race. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's maybe a matter of trying to expand the frame of, of the novel. So the novel is like this, has this small frame, but if you look at what is suggested to be off screen in terms of environment and in terms of racial relations or relations of exchange that might tie into race, like where you, what you're talking about with the Caribbean plantation investments, that is sort of a way of reading a novel that we could also look at in the real world. So you could look at a news article, for example, and try to expand the frame in a similar way. So think about what's off screen in this news article or what's off screen in whatever other nonfiction discourse that you're consuming. Exactly, exactly. So so it begins it begins to be a kind of habit that may begin with the reading of a novel or a poem, uh, but that you carry over into all sorts of activities of reading, you know, newspaper stories, watching episodes, just listening to how people talk about things. You begin to find patterns, you begin to find uh, embedded in, in what is said, you know, kind of implicit ideas that shape their world. So that's some of what I'll be trying to do on this podcast. Many of the novels we'll look at have storms, have the presence of fossil fuels, for example, but they might not necessarily have climate change stamped all over them. And I think that can be powerful, because it stops us from taking shortcuts where we take for granted what climate change is, what nature is, what being a human is, and instead makes space for us to notice what's implicit, 
what's going on behind the scenes of the stories we encounter on the news and in fictional worlds and in the stories we retell in our own minds. Ursula Le Guin, a famous science fiction author, said you could read fiction like a thought experiment. She writes, Let's say, says Mary Shelley, that a young doctor creates a human being in his laboratory. Let's say, says Philip K. Dick, that the Allies lost the Second World War. Let's say this or that is such and so and see what happens. In a story so conceived, thought and intuition can move freely within bounds set only by the terms of the experiment, which may be very large indeed. So that's what I'm doing here in a way, testing it out. Can we together look at fictional stories as thought experiments and through them discover new ways to see our shared world?